his wife, grandchildren and nearly killed his daughter. Convicted to life inside, he would go on to kill one more and become known as the Devil with the Breville. This is the story of John Walsh. Cambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Tonight is a tragic story, a story about a trusted family member that goes feral and attacks the ones closest to him, out of the blue, for no apparent reason at all. We had the case in Western Australia recently, where a grandfather shot and killed his wife, his daughter, and then his grandkids before turning the gun on himself. Well, this happened 10 years ago, in a place called Cowra. Now, Cowra is a good four hours drive west of Sydney with a population of around 10,000 people. It is a small but important town. In fact, during World War II, there was a prisoner of war camp for Japanese prisoners at Cowra and on the 5th of August 1945, about 545 Japanese POWs attempted a mass breakout resulting in four Australian guards and 231 Japanese killed. Also 108 prisoners were wounded. Now tonight I've used court records and newspaper articles in the research of this case. Of As usual, I used abc.net, news.com, Sydney Morning Herald, the Daily Mail and, of course, those court records. But back in 2008, the Walsh family lived in Cowra. 69-year-old John Walsh, his 52-year-old wife Jean and his 31-year-old daughter Shelley, who had a son and daughter, Kevin, aged 7, and Jamie, aged 5. Shelley was a police officer, in fact a senior constable, and she lived not far from her parents. She had gone through a divorce at the time, but had her own place while her police officer husband lived in Newcastle. Being a police officer, Shelley works different shifts, and she was able to drop the kids off with their grandparents, who would make sure they got ready for school whenever they stayed over, and by all accounts, they were a loving and stable family getting by and making do. So, as she'd done many times before, on the evening of the 29th of June 2008, Shelley drove her two children to stay at the grandparents' place for the night and she would then drive to the station where she worked at Parks. And now that's about an hour's drive northwest of Cowra. The next morning, the grandparents were to get the kids ready for school and in the afternoon, Shelley would stop by and pick them up. 
However, this night things would go tragically wrong. Now a small warning, this case does involve children but it doesn't go into very much in terms of gory detail at all. But I just want to give a trigger warning. Uh, You could skip forward a few minutes if you must. So, as Shelley dropped off the kids and kissed them goodbye, little did she know it would be the last time she would see her children alive. Later in the night, the kids went to bed in the room set out for them with a double bunk. Kevin had the top bunk and Jamie the bottom. John and Jean's dog wagged his tail as he was shooed out of the room. Later in the night, something, and I wouldn't say something snapped, but something went wrong in the mind of John Walsh. As his wife Jean was in their bedroom and possibly asleep, John hit her in the back of the head about three times with a hammer shaft, stabbed her with a knife, and then hit her on the back of the head with a lump hammer. The hammer shaft is a weapon that had been owned by John for many years, and he described it with a measure of pride. He referred to it by the name Fred. Jean would end up slumped on the floor, leaning up against the bed. After he killed Jean... He took the weapons and placed them in the sink. He then filled the bathtub with water and called out for little Jamie to get up and go to the toilet. Sleepy Jamie rubbed her eyes as she got out of bed and John carried her to the bathroom. He then placed her in the filled bath and with just a little struggle and a few kicks he held her under the water until she drowned. He then placed her on the bath mat to let the water drain out of her pyjamas before putting her back into her bed. He then woke Kevin and told him to go to the toilet. Kevin woke up, got off the top bunk of his bed and walked towards the toilet. John had placed his weapons close at hand and as Kevin walked back from the toilet, he struck him on the back of the head with a hammer shaft causing him to fall on the floor. John then got the lump hammer and hit Kevin again to the back of the head. He then put him in the bath and held him under to make sure that he was dead. John placed Kevin's body with his sister Jamie in the bottom bunk. John then drowned the family dog in the bath, wrapped him in plastic and placed him under the children's bed. He would tell police that he did so because after he left the house there would be no one to look after the dog. At around 4am, John typed a note on his computer and some of it was, sorry that it had to end this way and I would like to have a go at Shelley's ex. I may even yet. Later, he packed a bag of clothes. At around 9am, he went to the children's school and told staff that the children were sick and would probably not be able to attend school for a few days. He also withdrew $800 from an ATM and filled his car with two jerry cans of petrol. While John was out, Shelley tried calling her mum Jean from work, but of course, there was no answer. She called again at around 11am and spoke to her father John, 
who told her that her mother was lying down. She left Parks Police Station shortly after midday. Shelley arrived back at her parents' home at around 1.40pm. She went into her parents' room and saw her mother lying on the bedroom floor with her back leaning up against the bed. She thought her mother looked pale and that her hair appeared to be darker than normal. Well, she didn't have a real good look and then she went in search of her father. He was in the kitchen and she asked him if her mother was sick. John replied that she was on the floor to get comfortable as she had experienced pain in her stomach. He also said that her mother had asked to be left alone to get some rest. Shelley asked John if her mother was dead, to which he replied, No, no, don't be stupid. John then made Shelley a cup of tea and invited her to come and sit down in the lounge room and have a chat. As he walked past his computer desk on the way into the lounge room, he picked up a small axe. Shelley asked him why he had the axe. He told her that he'd been using it to do some jobs around the house earlier in the day. She then noticed that the children's school uniforms were still laid out on the lounge where they'd been left the night before. She asked the father why the uniforms were still there. He told her that the children had gone to school in Mufti. And, I don't know, we used to have that at school occasionally on Friday's free dress day or Mufti day or whatever. Anyway, she then went to the children's bedroom. She saw her daughter lying on the bottom bunk, partly covered by a quilt. She thought that she looked pale. She looked for her son on the top bunk, but could not see him. While Shelley was in the children's bedroom, her father approached her from behind, still holding the axe. She became concerned and said, What's going on? What have you done? John walked towards her and said, No, she's sick. The the doctor is coming in half an hour. Shelley then put her hand to her daughter's face. She was cold to the touch and Shelley realised that she'd been dead for some time. While Shelley had her back to her father, he swung the axe and struck her to the head a number of times. She managed to take hold of the axe and push him off balance. She asked him why he was doing this and he said, I'm doing this because I love you. When I'm done with you lot, I'm going to Newcastle to kill your ex-husband. We're all better off this way. This is the way it has to be. After a struggle, Shelley was able to escape to a neighbour's house where she contacted police. John left the house by car before police arrived. Following an extensive media campaign, police were contacted at 7pm that evening by the proprietor of a motel in Hay, who informed them that John Walsh had checked into the motel. He was arrested shortly afterwards. Shelley was taken to hospital. She had three lacerations to the head that required sutures. She also had a depressed fracture of the skull underneath which the lining of the brain was torn. That was repaired by surgery and part of her skull was replaced with titanium plates. Geez, she's lucky to be alive.
Shelley said that she could not think of any reason for her father to do what he had done. She stated that he had a loving relationship with her mother and his grandchildren and had never displayed any symptoms to indicate that he was suffering from any mental illness such as could explain his actions. She did suspect that he had suffered from some depression following the suicide of her brother in 2002, although it had never been diagnosed. So, John was arrested and interviewed by police. Now, he was able to provide an amazing amount of detail in regards to everything that happened around the attacks on his family, but refused to comment at all on the deaths of his wife, his two grandchildren, and the attack on his daughter. About a month later, John Walsh contacted detectives at his request and granted them a second interview. At this interview, he admitted to the killing of his wife, the two grandkids, plus the attack on his daughter, and of course, the killing of the dog. I've already been through what happened in regards to the killings and the attack on his daughter Shelley, but John also told police that he had packed a bag because he intended to go to Newcastle to kill Shelley's ex-husband after he had killed her. A search of his car revealed a handwritten note recording the address of Shelley's ex-husband, which was in the Newcastle area. John told police that he regarded his wife's death as a mercy killing, but that the other two are murder. Now, Jean did suffer from poor health from time to time, but nothing that would make her want to end her life or that she was ever in such great pain that it would be merciful to take her life. John told police that his wife had sometimes wished she was dead, but added, she never actually asked me to do it. John also attempted to explain his decision to kill his wife by reference to a concern about the cost of repairing some minor damage to his car caused by an accident a few days earlier and his ongoing concerns about money generally. But again, the family were not in any financial difficulties that could explain why he went on a killing spree. John told police that the reason he killed Jamie and Kevin was because he was concerned about what would happen to Shelley and the children once he'd killed his wife. He knew that he would be locked up, which would leave no one to help look after his daughter and her children. So he decided that it was best if they were added to the list. What? What the fucking... F- now, this guy has no mental illness, and he's thinking this way for fuck's sake. Anyway... John went on to say that it was his intention after killing Shelley to travel to Newcastle to kill her ex-husband after which he had originally also intended to kill himself. Now in the court records that I've been mainly reading from tonight, the judge made a comment that a disturbing feature of this case is the absence of any explanation for the offences. Now, other than the second interview which was read out in court, John did not give evidence at the sentencing proceedings. 
Four expert medical reports were tendered on John Walsh's behalf, but none of those were able to explain his actions. They found no mental illness at all, and he didn't try to use it as a defence either. And, you know, that's a change, unlike Anu Singh from a few episodes ago. So I'll read out a few of uh, Judge McCallum's comments, and it is quite a bit I'll be reading out, but I think it is quite relevant that I do read through most of it. He said, In my view, the murders of Jamie and Kevin stand within the worst category of case. The offender killed his young grandchildren when they had been entrusted to his care. He intended to kill them and planned their murders with grim attention. They were the second and third murders committed by him that night. Although all three murders were committed during the one night, there was a distinct interval before the murder of each child, during which the offender carried out the preparation for his next killing. He killed the children knowing that he had already killed the only person who might have come to their defence that night. He knew their mother was many miles away, trusting that her children were in safe hands. He abused the children's trust in him by coaxing them out of their beds. There was a high degree of violence in the murder of Kevin. The murder of Jamie involved a struggle during which she must have experienced a level of terror no child should know. The offender's culpability is not mitigated by mental illness or any other circumstance which provides a reason for his conduct. The killings remain unexplained. The only reason stated by the offender for killing Jamie and Kevin is the baseless and arrogant assertion that his daughter would not have been able to care for them on her own. His acts were wicked in the extreme. I am satisfied beyond reasonable doubt that the offender's level of culpability in the commission of the murders of the two children is so extreme that the community interest in retribution, punishment and deterrence can only be met through the imposition of life sentences. As I have already indicated, I am required nonetheless to consider whether a lesser sentence is justified by the offender's subjective circumstances. I have regard to the fact that he has pleaded guilty to the offences. Another mitigating factor is the fact that the offender has no significant record of previous convictions. There is little material before me from which I can assess his character except to say that he appears to have been in regular employment throughout his adult life. I accept, having regard to his age, that he would be unlikely to re-offend if released from prison. I also have regard to the fact that it will be more onerous for him to serve a term of imprisonment than it would be if he were younger. That consideration however, must be weighed against the objective culpability of the offender's conduct. I am not satisfied that the offender is remorseful to any significant extent. I am not prepared to conclude on the strength of the evidence before me that he has accepted responsibility for his actions. 
although he expressed some regret to police, has communicated no such sentiment to Shelley or to the children's father after taking their children from them. He expressed no remorse at the sentence hearing. In my view, there is little in the offender's subjective circumstances to mitigate his extreme culpability. Accordingly, I do not think it is appropriate to impose any lesser sentence than life imprisonment for the murders of the two children. The murder of the offender's wife, Jean, also displayed a high level of criminality. In respect of that offence, however, I am not satisfied beyond reasonable doubt that the level of culpability is so extreme as to require the imposition of a life sentence. I acknowledge, especially to Jean's daughter, Shelley, that it must appear to be a callous exercise to have to make such comparisons, but it is a task the court is required to undertake in order to determine the appropriate sentence according to law. Although I do not accept that the offender genuinely believed it was merciful to kill his wife, her killing nonetheless lacks some of the worst features of the murders of the two grandchildren, in particular their youth and vulnerability. The fact that they had been entrusted into the care of the offender and the fact that they were his second and third victims. In respect to the attempted murder of Shelley, I note that the offence involved an attack at close quarters with a high level of violence and the use of an axe. The premeditation of the offence involved a series of lies and a gross abuse of trust. The offender planned the offence and his subsequent escape over a period of many hours. The injuries inflicted on Shelley were very serious, but since grievous bodily harm is an element of the offence, I do not take that into account as an aggravating factor. The offender's attack on Shelley was the fourth in a series of brutal criminal acts. It was committed just as Shelley discovered that the offender had murdered her daughter which must have exacerbated its emotional impact. So, then the judge got John Walsh to stand while he read out the sentence. For the murder of Jamie Hodges, you are convicted and sentenced to imprisonment for life. For the murder of Kevin Hodges, you are convicted and sentenced to imprisonment for life. For the offence of causing grievous bodily harm to Shelley Walsh with intent to murder her, you were convicted and sentenced to imprisonment with a non-parole period of 12 years, commencing on the 30th of June 2008 and expiring on the 29th of June 2020, and a balance of term of four years. For the murder of Jean Walsh, you were convicted and sentenced to imprisonment with a non-parole period of 15 years, commencing on the 30th of June 2011 and expiring on the 29th of June 2026 and a balance term of five years. It's really baffling as to why he did it. In an interview Shelley had with A Current Affair a year or so after the killing, she said, We were a normal family. Mum, Dad, me and my two brothers. Dad worked. No one saw this coming. I can't get my mum back. I can't get my kids back. But I can get my life back. 
I won't let Dad take that away from me. In those few days after it happened, I wanted to take my own life. The support I received at the time was quite literally the difference between life and death. Now, Shelley did go to visit her father to try and find out why he did it. And she said, I went in February 2009 and he couldn't give me an answer. So I went and visited him Visited him again recently. He still claims he doesn't know why. He just shrugs his shoulders. She said she believed her father's undiagnosed mental illness is what sparked his murderous rampage. In that moment, he was someone different. We watched him go downhill after my brother suicided in 2002, but we never could approach him. Dad was all about power and control. Maybe if we stepped up and done something earlier, this wouldn't have happened. Now, Shelley said coping with the loss of her family was a day-to-day proposition, as you can imagine. She says, I get up every day trying to make that day the best day of my life. If I can do that, he doesn't win. He doesn't get what he wanted. Now, at the time, Shelley was an advocate for domestic violence awareness and also an education development officer with the New South Wales Police. She was sharing her story with graduates at the Goulburn Police Academy. The more people I help means my family didn't die for nothing. So, maybe he did snap. But obviously Shelley felt secure in trusting her parents to look after the kids. Now this is just an absolute awful thing to happen. Now, in the title of this episode, I called it John Walsh, the Devil with the Breville. Well, John Walsh is getting on in years and he was transferred at some stage to the geriatric wing of Long Bay Jail, or as it's formerly known, the Kevin Waller Unit, which is an integrated aged care unit for elderly and frail prisoners. The old folks' home for crims, and the home of convicted killer and former police officer Roger Rogerson, which you may have heard about on Bloody Murder. Anyway... So, on the 28th of December 2017, now 77-year-old John Walsh was moved into a cell at the aged care unit at Long Bay Jail with his new cellmate, 71-year-old Frank Townsend, who was in jail for the 2010 shooting death of 34-year-old Belinda Trad, who was found with several gunshot wounds. So they're going to put one scumbag in with another scumbag. At around 2pm on the 2nd of January 2017, that's just five days after they've moved in together, the prisoners were returned to their cells for the night and the unit was locked down in accordance with usual procedure. 2pm, eh? That's pretty early, but I guess they're pretty old. Anyway, at around 10.50pm, Corrective services officers patrolling alongside the unit heard five or six bangs, like the sound of an object being hit against something else. They said there was about a second between each sound. They opened the gate leading to the Kevin Waller unit and shone a torch into the first cell, where they saw John Walsh sitting up on his bed 
with his legs hanging over the edge. One of the officers asked what was going on, but he remained silent. The officer heard his cellmate in bed making what sounded like a loud snoring noise. Walsh lay back down on his bed and the officers moved on to check the other cells in the complex. About 30 seconds later, they heard two more sounds similar to the sound that they'd heard earlier. At about the same time, another inmate woke up to the sound of three really loud bangs, which appeared to have come from the Walsh and Townsend cell. Shortly afterwards, that inmate, who had formerly worked as a nurse, heard what he described as Cheney Stokes breathing, which is the strained breathing characteristic of a person who is near death. When the officers finished checking the other cells in the complex, they returned to Walsh's cell where they again saw him seated on his bed. He stood up and turned on the internal light in the cell, saying, I think I need to get out of the cell. I think I heard him. The officers saw that Townsend had a large gash to the side of his face. On closer inspection, they saw that he had such severe injuries to the skull that it looked as though part of his cheek was missing. There was a large amount of blood within the cell. The officers called for emergency response and medical assistance. While Walsh was being escorted to another cell, an officer asked him why he had attacked the victim. He replied in a calm voice, He was going to kill me tonight. Townsend was taken by ambulance to St Vinnie's Hospital where he later died after going into cardiac arrest. An autopsy would determine that the direct cause of death was blunt traumatic injuries to the head, face and neck. Now, this is where the devil with the breville comes from. The weapon he used to bash Townsend to death was one of those breville sandwich presses. I don't know if you get the Breville brand where you're listening from, but it's a huge double-sided hot plate that you can warm up or toast your sandwiches with, or as we say in Australia, Sangers. Funny enough, the process of attacking an inmate in that way has the name Brevling. It's happened several times over the years in Australian prisons. Anyway, the one that Walsh used had a long handle that he was able to hold as he bashed in Townsend's skull. He did wrap it in a pillowcase and that seems to be the method. All the times people have been breveled in prisons, it seems to be covered by a pillowcase. Anyway, all I know, I don't want to get breveled by anybody. So, in the police interview, Walsh said that Townsend had threatened him. Now, Townsend, he reckoned, had said, I'll have to kill you to get you out of this cell. Well, Walsh went on to tell police, and then in the evening, he started the shenanigans, you know. First of all, he didn't go to sleep at normal time. He left the TV on to stay awake longer. My thought, he's trying to tire me out. So I was on guard. When he sat up in that bed and turned around, I reacted. Maybe I overreacted. And I'm not, to tell you the truth, I'm bloody not sorry because he's an asshole. Because as far as I'm concerned, I had no intentions on killing him. He just died. It was so easy. 
I have no idea how many times I hit him. He turned on the bed and I'm pretty sure that the foot was on the floor, but I'm not 100%. I grabbed the thing, touched him on the top of the head. He went backwards onto the bed and I stepped forward with both hands and chum, onto his face. Now, I'm not sure too. I, I think it was three times and his hands came up and I hit his hands twice and then I hit him again in the face. But after that, I'm not sure if I hit him again. I might have hit him more. Bang, bang, you don't count. You just act. And the acting is natural because I work tactical. I wasn't in a temper. I never have been. (sighs) Anyway, (laughs) Walsh also said, as soon as Townsend turned on the bed, I thought he was going to come at me. So I went first. He later said, well, I think he was planning something, but it's only, uh, I didn't say he was. I said, I think he was planning something. That's what the look told me. He was asked how he deals with anger, to which he said, well, I don't work in anger. I work in tactical. I work in cold rage. I told you that. I had a hold of the Breville and on his head, and he was demonstrating a swinging motion with his right arm, and then dropped it into the other hand, and he'd demonstrate two movements of striking down with both arms. I keep telling you the word. Think of it. Tactical. I'm not using it to make it look good. My mind works that way, not me. And it works without you even having to think about it. So I reckon cold rage is bloody dangerous. I don't think I was thinking anything. I can't honestly say that. All I remember is bang, bang, bang. The hand moving, hand twice, then hit him once. I probably hit him after that, but I don't remember it. I shut it out probably. I don't know. The only thing I can shut out is my own family. Like, I can't, I don't know why that's happened, because there was no anger, no drugs, no booze. Just the depressing silence, and I went and killed my wife. Maybe some people shouldn't be born. I don't know. Now, I do have a theory on why he did this. Knowing he's getting older at 77, and he could be free in eight years more time. I think he needed to extend his sentence, or he could find himself a very old and frail man and on the street. At least in prison, he gets a roof over his head and fed. If he left it too long to do something like this, he may have found he's too old to kill someone inside, so he took the opportunity to Breville Townsend when he did. So Walsh ended up getting Justice McCallum. Now, he was the judge at his original murder trial when he murdered his wife and grandkids. So you've heard the story and that was what happened in court. Well, he got another life sentence and he will almost certainly die in jail. So, Islanders, what a fucked up story. Usually you can point to something that causes someone to go crazy and murder their family. John Walsh had no previous record of violence at all. Other than the suicide of his son, there was nothing to explain why he did what he did. Look, it would have been better for everyone if he'd just killed himself and been done with it. Now, the killing of his cellmate, well, I guess that's called prison justice. 
And Townsend was a scumbag, but still, he didn't deserve to be breveled. It's all just a shame, and Shelley and her ex-husband, well, they've lost their children. Now, from what I can find, Shelley has a new partner called Denise, I think, but they don't plan on having any more kids. Now, Shelley says she's too afraid that something will happen to them. She won't always be there to protect them. Now, that that's just fucking sad. So, that's about it for tonight, Islanders. Now, on with the shout-outs for the new Patreon people this week. And we have a few. We have Marion Mills, Renika Williams, and Jennifer Ballesteri has upped her pledge to the highest level. We have Kate with no last name and Vicky Joseph. Todd Hedges has also upped his pledge. Thank you very much, everyone. Now, you too can help out the island for as little as $1 a month. You can go to patreon.com forward slash true crime island and get on board. But if you don't want a monthly commitment, you can also donate via PayPal at paypal.me forward slash true crime island. Another big shout out to Supreme Princess Christy Booth for your donation. Thank you very much. If you email me, cambo at truecrimeisland.com, I've got stacks of stuff here, which is koozies, keychain stickers, and little lapel pins. Now, I can post it to you for a donation amount, and that all depends on postage and the like. All other merch, such as T-shirts, hoodies, tote bags, mugs of rage, and all that stuff, is via the shop at truecrimeisland.threadless.com. Check out the new Mug of Rage design. Hi to Jennifer, Lindsay and Angie who bought three of these Mugs of Rage for their work. And there is a photo going around on Facebook where they are all drinking from their new Mugs of Rage. Thank you very much. They even have photos of Bubby the True Crime Island Cat posted up at their work. Boom fuckalunga. And of course, please always post photos of your merch. That is great. And thank you very much. There's links to everything at the website. So you don't have to remember any of that. Just truecrimeisland.com. Now, this is totally listener-supported show, as I know how annoying those ads can be. So every cent goes back to the island, and it's greatly appreciated. I think, as I said last week, we've just renewed the hosting for another year and all that Google-type stuff. That means it's nearly the second birthday for the island, so what should we do? I think the second birthday show is in October, so it, it is coming up. So get on Facebook and all that stuff. Tell us what you want. But you don't have to spend money to support the show. You can rate, review and share the love. Tell someone about the show and if they don't know what a podcast is, grab their fucking phone and stick it in there. Don't forget to join the closed group on Facebook. Hook up on Twitter and Instagram. The handle for those two is at True Crime Island. And you can search for the Facebook group. Just put in True Crime Island. And if you message me, can you join the Facebook group or uh, Cambo Ford and message me via that? Sometimes it's so difficult to use the app to find your messages. So I do try my best to answer 
answer all posts and emails. Now, if you really need to speak to me, if you've got some case suggestion or something, email is the best. As sometimes, I, like I said, I get a bit lost in the Twitter feeds and the Facebook messages. But we have amazing mods. They will let you in. Jason and Senga and Senga, I hope your little doggy gets better. And Jason, I hope you get better as well. So tonight I have one promo. It's called the Getting Off Podcast. Two dark human criminal defense attorneys talk about trials, crime and criminal justice. And of course, getting off. Well, getting off your charges. Do yourself a favor, check it out. And just a couple of things. Donnie Grimble, you asked to be in the closed Facebook group, but I can't decide if your account is real or not. Please get in touch so I can sort it out. You've got a great name, Donnie Gimble. It, I don't know if it's Mafia or not, but it's a great name, mate. So just send me a message and say, hey, you are a real account. Well, that's about all for tonight and lots of love to Maggie James. So this has been Cambo and you've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Boom, fuck a I wonder if anyone will notice I did that last bit after the restaurant drinking beers. wondered how it was possible that a defendant got acquitted? Are you interested in criminal justice reform? Do you often find yourself making extraordinarily inappropriate jokes while swearing like a sailor? Then the Getting Off podcast is for you. Hosted by us. Two real live criminal defense attorneys. Getting Off explains the legal reasons behind outcomes in famous trials and tackles tough topics in the world of crime and criminal justice. We use first-hand sources like trial transcripts, police reports, crime scene photographs, and appeals briefs to give you the information that the public rarely hears about when it comes to the criminal justice system. Our podcast isn't about carefully crafted musical interludes or obsessively edited narratives. Instead, it is a no-holds-barred, unedited, raw legal presentation by two lawyers that have spent over a decade each in the trenches. Previously covered cases include Casey Anthony, Michael Peterson, Jody Arias, and more. Subscribe to the Getting Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Do that to get off now.